1: Cyberbit is offering Cyberwire listeners a free live fire exercise. Sign up your team now at Cyberbit.com/slash Cyberwire. Russia says nope, we didn't hack the DNC, but CrowdStrike stands by its attribution. Gusifer 2.0 shows up DNC Chair Wasserman Schultz, as both Snowden and Trump share their own speculations. The FBI continues to probe possible ISIS connections to the Orlando shooter. Some GitHub user credentials are compromised. In industry news, some companies are looking at M&A, but at least two prominent ones aren't. Patches this week close Windows Bad Tunnel and Adobe Flash Player vulnerabilities. Analysts express concern over IoT security, and we take a look at car hacking. I'm Dave Bittner in Baltimore with your CyberWire Summary and Week in Review for Friday, June 17, 2016. The Russian government, to no one's surprise, piously denies any involvement in the DNC hack. Guccifer 2.0, the source claiming to be the lone hacker behind the year-long persistent intrusion into the Democratic National Committee's networks, releases more documents. In this case, the files are by name and by amount donor information, which contradicts DNC chair Wasserman Schultz's assurances that no financial data were lost. CrowdStrike stands by its attribution of the hack to Russian intelligence services. The company's co-founder and CTO Dmitry Alperovich suggests the possibility that Gusher 2.0 is a disinforming catfish put forward to deflect suspicion from Russia's FSB and GRU, Cozy Bear and Fancy Bear. Ars Technica and others point out circumstantial evidence that the hacker was at least Russian-speaking, the use of a characteristically Russian form of a smiley emoji, the Cyrillic text noting broken links, which suggests that doxed PDFs were converted on a Russian language machine, and interestingly, the name Felix Edmundich, left by the last editor in document metadata. Felix Edmundich is the name of Lenin's principal enforcer, and about as closely associated with Soviet-era secret police as J. Edgar would be with the Cold War FBI, not to imply any moral equivalence between the two, but you see the point. The choice of the pseudonym argues circumstantially that someone working on the documents has a nostalgic urge to be back in the USSR. In any case, circumstantial. Moving beyond the circumstantial to the realm of theoretical speculation, Edward Snowden thinks the DNC hack shows someone wants to show they have the ability to manipulate elections. Maybe. And Donald Trump says it's possible the DNC may have hacked itself. Few takers so far on this one. The FBI cautions that it's found no link between Orlando shooter Mateen and ISIS, by which they mean no command and control, since Mateen said plenty online about loyalty to ISIS. A study of ISIS sympathizers on Twitter reports predictable social media behavior prior to attacks. The researchers from the University of Miami and Harvard University also suggest it's possible to identify and track ad hoc web groups, aggregates, as opposed to individuals. Tracking aggregates may prove a more tractable challenge than following individuals. The difference between hundreds and hundreds of thousands of social media actors. Such aggregate tracking in cyberspace might develop indicators and warnings of physical attacks. In developing threat intelligence on cyber attacks. attack traffic itself provides indicators and warnings of imminent or ongoing campaigns. Such traffic can be collected in honeypots or as live data. We spoke to Dale Drew from our research partners at Level 3 about the difference between these sources of information. We'll hear from him after the break. GitHub has sustained and is recovering from a password-guessing attack. GitHub itself wasn't compromised, but many user accounts were. It seems likely the account holders were for the most part victims of earlier breaches from services like MySpace, Tumblr, and LinkedIn. GitHub is notifying affected users and advising everyone to move to two-factor authentication. This week has seen continuing reaction, mostly positive, to Symantec's acquisition of privately held Bluecoat. Bluecoat CEO is expected to move up to leadership of Symantec, and the acquisition is regarded as a move toward repositioning Symantec away from some of its legacy products and into emerging security technologies. Some analysts see the move foreshadowing more competition between Symantec and IBM. FireEye still isn't for sale, and news that it turned down suitors, news that was broken by Bloomberg earlier this week, seems to have given the company's share prices a boost. FireEye had retained the services of Morgan Stanley to field inquiries and asset interest, according to Bloomberg, but decided against taking any offers it received. Tanium isn't for sale either. Rumors to the contrary, the unicorn says it's not interested in being acquired. Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. And I'm joined once again by Dale Drew. He's the chief security officer at Level 3 Communications. Dale, there's been a lot of talk about uh, the difference between analyzing honeypots versus analyzing uh, live data. What's the advantage of either of those approaches?
0: You know, we, we believe that, that uh, honeypot data and live data are both critically important, and they're, they're important for, um, uh, for very different reasons. You know, now, a honeypot is, is basically if, if you want to catch a bear... You, you put out a, a pot of honey, and then you watch the bear go to that pot of honey. And that, that's essentially what a honeypot is. It's a system that is specifically and solely designed to attract a bad guy and have that bad guy break into it and then watch what the bad guy does. Um, and so honeypots provide a, a pretty significant advantage. You know, you you have the ability of of capturing everything the bad guy does as they're trying to break into the system, and once they've broken in the system, and then what they're searching for when they're on the system. So there's a pretty wide variety of honeypot uh, capabilities to respond to each of those sort of notions, Uh, remote access, uh, local access, and even content analysis. So we think honeypots provide a pretty significant advantage in getting the context of what a bad guy is doing and how they're doing it. But live data is also pretty important, and one of the advantages that, that you have as a network um, a provider is that you've got a view of the entire neighborhood. So you don't have to, the, the disadvantage of honeypots is that you have to wait to be a victim. You have to wait to be compromised to know when a bad guy is after you. If you already know where the bad guy is, using live network data allows you to see that bad guy access customers or access the network before they even uh, even hit a honeypot. And so when we, when we stop network traffic, when we stop the bad guys, we're able to see that bad guy move and manipulate and try to regain access back to the network uh, live without having to wait for a honeypot to be compromised.
1: Is there any sense that, that the bad guys are, are, are getting a, a better notion of, of when? Uh, are they detecting the honeypots better or are they able to, uh, to know when they're being lured into one?
0: Yeah, I would say honeypot uh, technology is a very vicious cat-and-mouse game. Um, bad guys will, will specifically be looking for honeypot technology uh, and, and honeypot behavior. And, and a lot of malware is designed to either not operate at all or to operate differently when it detects a honeypot. Um, same thing with uh, with a wide variety of detection uh, technologies. It's always sort of a cat-and-mouse game of the bad guy trying to, to get around that sort of security detection technology so they can be more focused on getting access to uh, the victim.
1: All right, Dale Drew, thanks for joining us. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? That's vanta.com slash cyber. Looking back, this was, of course, June's big week for patching. Microsoft published its customary Patch Tuesday fixes, the most interesting of which addressed a widespread network traffic hijacking vulnerability that's going by the name of Bad Tunnel. Bad Tunnel can be exploited through all versions of Microsoft Office, Edge, Internet Explorer, and some third-party Windows apps. Tencent's Shonshu lab in Beijing, which discovered the flaw, describes Bad Tunnel as affording a way to spoof NetBIOS across networks. Adobe issued its promised Flash Player patch for Windows, Macintosh, Linux and Chrome OS late Thursday. The zero day it fixes is being exploited in the wild, especially in an espionage campaign by the Scarcroft APT group. Internet of Things concerns touched at least three areas this week. Booz Allen-Hamilton published an extensive report on industrial control system security. Booz notes the familiar array of threat actors interested in ICS attacks – nation states, criminals, hacktivists, and insiders. The report sees the barriers to entry dropping, as ICS attack tools show the same movement toward widespread availability and commoditization visible in other criminal sectors. And a senior NSA leader's public musing about the intelligence that could be garnered from connected medical devices excited widespread, often slightly paranoid, comment. As our cars become more connected and as self-driving systems are under advanced development in many places around the world, many wonder about the future of automotive cybersecurity. We'll go that speculation one better. Today we talk about the present of automotive security with Craig Smith, founder of Open Garages and an expert on hacking cars.
2: In the beginning, you know, we had vehicles that are all mechanical. The nice thing about that, of course, is that when you bought a vehicle, you pretty much have got the bill of materials with the vehicle, which made it easy to, to work on it and tinker and all that good stuff. Um, and eventually, we started getting these electronic components put in. Um, but eventually, the boxes had to talk to each other, and then the one from discrete logic chips, actually microcontrollers, which is running firmware, and the complexity grew as we started switching to a network-based model. Still, we weren't quite to the area of having cyber risk yet. You didn't really run into a, I guess, a real threat until we started adding more and more connectivity. Uh, You know, it started pretty small, you know, some digital radio stuff, you know, XM satellite, those kinds of things. Um, But now they've gotten to the point where most of the communication, you know, external are things that most people recognize from a normal network or normal laptop, such as wireless access points and Bluetooth and um, cellular uplink and things like the cellular uplink is a great example where you've gone from a closed system to one that's not reachable from anywhere in the world.
1: Smith says it's only in the last few years that automotive manufacturers have started to put significant resources into the cyber-related security of their products.
2: They are doing threat modeling. You know, They are looking at the architecture from a security perspective. Um, which is great. Uh, It does take a long time, you know, in a automotive production world to kind of see the fruit of the labor. Typically, if you buy a car today, that car was designed five years ago. So there's a lot of challenges there. And without like an over the air update system, those vehicles are also pretty much just stay the way they are for the next 10 plus years on the road. And as you know from the software world, making a piece of software doesn't need fix of any type in 10 years. is kind of unheard of.
1: There's a good bit of media attention about hackers remotely accessing cars while they're on the road and taking control of them. But Craig Smith says that for now, that's not the kind of attacks they're seeing.
2: What we're seeing as far as the malicious users right now, um, they're really just taking cars. They're not doing anything more complex than that yet. so, Once the threshold for stealing a car electronically becomes easier than just smashing a window, you go that route what we're seeing, at least from the electronic side, is we're seeing things that attack the key pop system, um, things that will basically amplify a signal of your passive key entry systems, so the ones where you walk up to the car and the car unlocks for you, and so they'll do they'll amplify the signals of the vehicle to make it seem like you're closer to the car than you are. So if you park you know, near your house or something of that nature, um, they can get the car to unlock. They won't be able to usually drive the car away. It's a pretty easy one. You can build an amplifier for like 40 bucks, um, so, again, the the technical threshold has dropped to a point where it's pretty easy to build one of these things, throw in a backpack, and walk up and down the street.
1: Like any rapidly evolving attack surface, Smith expects to see exploits evolving, too.
2: So I think what you're going to probably see as we get more of a traditional hacker malicious element uh, into automotive is you're probably going to see things such as data harvesting. You know, you're going to try and locate things such as, like, undercover squad cars that's worth a lot of money. Um, listening in on the microphone inside of vehicles, uh, especially for high-profile vehicles, limo services, things of that nature. Those are worth a lot. And then, hopefully not, but you you could even see things like ransomware and stuff of that nature. I think, regardless, we're gonna see that kind of stuff before we start seeing people trying to hurt other people with it. Um, It's possible, of course. I would demonstrate that it's possible, but It's, you know, you kind of have to be a little bit messed up to decide that that's a a normal thing to do. This isn't defacing a website.
1: We're already seeing cars that assist their drivers, and as self-driving cars develop, Smith sees interesting challenges and opportunities for passenger safety.
2: NISTA has said in 2018 that, you know, we basically need vehicles that can, you know, sense if a cars in front of them and and automatically apply the brakes. All right, so that is a vehicle who will override the human, the humans that they're saying i want to get a gas uh, the car decides no i'm not going to give it gas so, as a matter of fact i'm going to do the opposite of what you just said i'm going to apply the brakes all right so that's the car riding a human simple system self-driving cars have a much larger attack surface but they're designed differently um and we have cases like uh, in california where you know, judges are saying okay like, hey, we need a steering column inside of the self-driving car so humans can override the car you can't have both so as we're moving forward we can't have Humans are riding cars while the cars are riding humans. You know, We have to decide which one we decide is safer and go with it. I prefer, even though it's a higher tax surface, the self-driving cars because when they don't have the luxury of relying on a human to blame for mistakes, um, they have to do a lot of self-check. So they don't trust their own sensors. And this is a key piece. And so we have a bunch of different types of sensors to, to determine you know, if what's in front of them is a pile of leaves or, you know, a dog laying on the road, you can't just sit there and say, well, the, the human should have taken over. They have to use the different sensors to determine it. And having an internal network that doesn't trust the output of its own sensors, it has to have a consensus, is way better. So even though there's a lot more attack surface than self-driving, we're looking at a better starting point. So it's very interesting because you wouldn't naturally think that's the case.
1: There are also interesting intellectual property implications as automotive systems come to rely on crypto for updates and security.
2: Um, as we have this kind of newfound, uh, newfound with the, these automotive manufacturers interest of you know stepping up the security and kind of getting it closer to modern day security, um, we're going to move to over-the-air updates, which is going to be like a PKI kind of system. You know, it's going to use public key crypto. So you you know, if you push an update over the air. And you know it's from the manufacturer, which is great, and you should totally do that. But there's an additional challenge if we go to that type of system in that we could potentially lock out mom-and-pop shops and individual car owners from doing any kind of firmware changes or integration uh, with the existing components. Because with a public key infrastructure type system, um, you would need a key. And unless they're going to do some significant key management we could really get down to a point where even though you paid a bunch of money for your Tesla, you may not really own it because you can't make any changes to it. And I actually, the reason why I'm bringing it up is I see people in the security community make this mistake more than I see the automotive community make a mistake. Um, automotive community kind of gets the right to repair and right to tinker. Uh, security people are like, lock everything down. Only you get the key. We did a good job. Let's go home. And that's not how it's going to work with cars. You have to do the hard step and make it say, yes, you can't remotely update firmware, but we need a way for consumers to be able to say, nah, I, I know what I'm doing, I want to make these changes, or maybe I want to invent something new, or whatever it is, and you know, I paid for this car to make modifications, and it's my car. How do I do that? And we have to solve that problem.
1: That's Craig Smith, the founder of Open Garages. We've really got to get Tesla as a sponsor. And that's the Cyberwire. We are proudly produced in Maryland by our talented team of editors and producers. I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security.